Welcome to the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. Jennifer McGraw writes nonfiction history focusing on the 1600s in the Michelin Mackinac region. Her latest book, The Unsolved Mysteries of Father Marquette's Many Graves, follows other books or booklets she has authored, including Lawless Mackinac and The David Haynes Dig. She is also co-author of a collection of writings called The Remembrances of David Kaur, co-authored with Prentice M. Brown, Jr. It's nice to see so many people on, and I know more people might be joining us, which is great. And I welcome Jennifer, who's going to be talking to us tonight about the unsolved mysteries of Father Marquette's graves. Um, uh, Victor... And the Friends of the Crystal Falls Library, and Victor being the president of U, um, UPA, which is the Upper Peninsula Publishers and Authors Association, both of those organizations help sponsor these events, and we do pay the authors who have been awarded the award to speak to us, a small stipend. And so because of that generosity by my friend Victor, he is he gets to talk and tell us wonderful things about what's happening with the Upper Peninsula Publishers and Authors Association. So take it away, Victor. Thank you, Evelyn. I am really excited to announce tonight that we have just opened the registration for the uh, Young Writers Storytelling Workshop, which is open to students all over the UP in grades five through 12. This is the first time it's ever been, ever been uh, held. And that will be on May 18th, 2024. It will happen simultaneously with the uh, EPA Spring Conference and at the same place. So it's a great opportunity. Uh, if you have a son or daughter, grandchild, niece, nephew that's interested in writing, it's a great, it's a full day workshop. We take them through a review of the basics like um, conflict and, and character development and so on. So their, their writing skills will increase and it's, it's designed to be fun um, and there's lots of fun interactive exercises and it's only fifteen dollars it's the uh, it's the educational bargain of the century we just want to have as many students participate as we can and there's even a few uh need-based scholarships so if you're having trouble making that uh we can we can help you with that too so uh, to get started Head on over to uppaa.org slash storytelling. That's upa.org slash storytelling. And all the information is there. And we hope uh, to have a room full of excited young students ready to write on May 18th. That's exciting. Um, we've got here, you know, at the library, we have a young adult uh, group that meets once a month. Tyler came and spoke to them because they read Frankenstein. And so in October, Tyler did a talk about Gothic literature with them. And some of the kids in that group are are really into writing. So I got your press release today and I made some copies. I'm gonna, hopefully we can get some people from Crystal Falls to come up for that day. I think it'd be a, a lot of fun. Yay, go Crystal Falls. Yeah, all right. Well, without any further ado, I guess some just some calendar items. So for those of you who are not aware, last month we met with Matthew Hellman. At least we met with his picture. He, we couldn't hear him he, uh, at all. 
So um, we try to do a little bit on the chat, but of course that it's hard to have a discussion that way. So he is going to join us next month, the month of March, which I think is great because if any of you have not read The Biting Cold mm -hmm. by Matthew Hellman, I please get a copy and read it. You will like it. It was kind of a hands-down favorite by many of the people in the book group that met last time. So it gives you a chance to read the book. It goes pretty fast. And I think you'll we'll all enjoy the talk with Matthew. Tonight, though, we are so lucky to have Jennifer with us. And we were talking a little bit about her book and being a UP Notable Award winner just before many of you got on. And she was telling us how exciting it was. Um, so I, I learned a lot from reading this book. Just I was kind of like, wow, you know, a lot of things I didn't really know so you enlighten me and and I we'd love to hear you talk more about it. So would you like to just start by speaking or do you want to do questions and answers or how how would you like to do it Jennifer? Well, I I have some notes like I kind of plan to just talk about the book for a little while and um but um however you want is fine with me. I don't have a Most of our people do that. They start off talking and then we might interrupt with a question or we can have questions at the end. Okay, um, that's great. Um, okay. So should I just start then? Sure. Okay, well, um, welcome everybody. I'm Jennifer McGraw and uh, thank you. Thank you for your interest. I really appreciate that you have um, have signed in for this. And um, so I guess I'll start by, by talking about myself for a second. So you know who I am. And um, so I'm the author of four books or booklets. Um, the, the first is a collection of stories um, written by David Corp. And I'm a co-author of that. And um, they, um, they center around the fishing industry in uh, Lake Michigan in the mid to late 1800s. And then I have a book um, about uh, a man named David Haynes who um, dug up a skeleton, a skull in his um, yard and come to find out he had a thousand year old um, skeleton and 12 more in addition to that. And, um, and it was just mostly about his story of finding them and what he did next. And then um, I have a book called Lawless Mackinac, which is um, just a general history of what life was like here in the late 1600s when there were forts in the Sioux and um, there were five forts in St. Ignace and there were soldiers that lived here, what life was like then. And the book we're talking about tonight is The Unsolved Mysteries of Father Marquette's Many Graves. And, um, and a little bit more, um, I, I do some speaking also, and I've given interviews to PS. I've given interviews to the History Channel that never aired. And um, I have a little cable TV um, show that just is me that, and I'm just talking about the 1600s in Michigan. And I'm sure it only airs at two o'clock in the morning in like three little towns downstate. So, um, but, um, but maybe one of the, the, coolest things that I've ever done as far as speaking is I gave the keynote address to the um, the Historical Society of Michigan's conference a few years ago and there were about 500 people there and um, and it was fun. I really enjoyed it. 
But um, so you could tell by the list of books that I did that I really like the 1600s. And that's generally the history that I focus on is the 1600s. And um, I find it really interesting because that's the time when the first Europeans arrived in Michigan. And so you've got a couple of things happening there, but you've got the Native American population at its least influenced point. And you've got written records that are coming out of um, Michigan. And um, so you've got the joining of those two cultures. And um, and so that kind of a time that I really like to focus on. And, um, and uh, if you can get around the French language barrier, which, um, which sometimes is a difficulty for me, um, there's a lot of information as far as biographies and military records and um, and Jesuit relations, which is 10,000 pages of missionary records um, that they were using actually as fundraising material. They would write about their life in the villages with the Native Americans, and they would send that back to France and hope people would send them money. And so, um, so it's a really interesting time. And um, it's the time when um, the Jesuit missionaries first show up and, and the Jesuits were Catholics. They um, came to um, to convert the Native American population to, to Catholic, can't say it right now, to the Catholic religion. And um, they came to keep an eye on the French fur traders that were here. And, and the French fur traders, if you really start to study them, surprisingly, they were very young. Sometimes they were teenagers. Often they were teenagers or in their 20s. A, a time period where I always joke, I, I still hadn't given my kids permission to ride their bikes on the road, but the French fur traders were coming across to this continent and, and um, going out on their own via canoe and, and, um, and living amongst the Native Americans. So my book is uh, broken into two parts. It's um, broken into Father Marquette's life in North America. And the other part focuses on his multiple graves and the unsolved mysteries regarding his graves and particularly the mysteries um, about the bones that they've found in St. Ignace and whether they are or are not his bones. And um, the book presents evidence that the evidence that led people to believe that those are his bones. And it presents the evidence that led people to doubt that we have actually found Marquette's bones. And I don't draw a conclusion in the book. I, um, and the truth is if you, if you want to know the truth, that I have not formed a conclusion, that I go back and forth. And some days I'm pretty sure that they're not his bones. And some days I'm pretty sure that they are his bones. So, um, so like I said, Father Marquette was a Jesuit missionary. And um, he came at a time that the Native American populations in Michigan were at war and they were at war with the Iroquois tribes, which are five or six confederated tribes that live in the New York area. And they um they were at war, and uh, the 
a lot of our population had been um, at, at the time just prior east of Lake Huron. And because the Iroquois could um, come at them and attack relatively easily, um, then they relocated and moved up into areas of Michigan. And um, so in then they um, were still being attacked. So they moved uh, even further to the far um, west end of Lake Superior. And so um, as this is happening, um, the Jesuits that are already in the Michigan area um, put word out to France that they could use some help. And so in 1668, they bring Marquette to Michigan and he establishes the first mission in Sault Ste. Marie. It was the third attempt at establishing a mission in Sault Ste. Marie. They tried in 1641, they sent two um, missionaries to um, Sault Ste. Marie and one of them got sick and they um, returned before building any buildings or, or really um, not having been there very long, they returned back to east of Lake Huron when that missionary that was ill, he passed away. And then again in 1656, they tried to establish a mission to St. Marie and they sent a Jesuit named Garot um, to establish that mission. And he was on his way and he was shot in the spine by some Iroquois on the St. Lawrence River. And um, so that mission attempt again failed. So. In 1668, they sent Marquette, and Marquette arrived. Uh, contrary to a lot of the information that we see, he arrived with um, laymen and also um, slaves. And together, they built um, a four, a living quarters, and um, a chapel. And um, at that time, or right around that time, there was also a native. American fort, at least one Native American fort in Sault Ste. Marie. There may have been others, but there's at least one identified in um, in some of the writings. And um, so in 1669, uh, Father Marquette met Louis Joliet, who um, and an explorer, and he um, also um, was a government employee. He was supposed to be scouting for um, valuable minerals when he was there. And according to some sources, the two became friends. And um, they were hearing information from the Native Americans that lived in the village that there was a huge river that was um, off to the west. And at the time, the um, the French were looking for passages to Asia. They were um, looking for more fur trade territory and Joliet and Marquette asked for permission because it, it was required that they get permission. They asked for permission to explore the river. Um, but before that they actually did, um, Marquette was sent further to the west to the um, La Pointe area, um, Ashland, Wisconsin, um, it goes by many names, the Apostle Islands. He was sent um, there and he was um, a minister among the tribes that were 
uh, again, refugees from the Iroquois that lived over in that direction. Oops, sorry, I didn't expect the real phone to ring. <laughs> um, and um, so he, uh, he was there for a time. He was seasonally traveling back and forth to the Sioux and Joliet was still there. And um, there became a, a problem between the Sioux and by Sioux, I mean S-I-O-U-X, otherwise known as Dakota, Lakota, or Nakota, who lived in the area um, to the west end uh, of Lake Superior. And they really didn't like having these refugee native populations um, right near them. And so they became, began skirmishing and it became a problem. And so um, then in 1671, um, Marquette, and the along with the native populations of of the Michigan tribes, the the Chippewa, the Ottawa, the um, Potawatomi, there there were many tribes that were located there that were refugees. But they um they moved again back to the east, and um, this time Marquette was put in Saint Ignace, and um, so he started over again. They built a fort. They built uh, living quarters. They built um, they built um, a chapel, and um, and soon, two years later, he got word that Louis Joliet and he were going to go and explore the Mississippi. So um, so Louis Joliet arrives in approximately the um, prior December. And they prepared throughout the winter and um, in the spring, in May, they um, took off and they um, had five Frenchmen with them. Um, they formed the company because um, the French government would not pay for the trip, even though it was a government sanctioned trip. It was um, something that the explorers themselves were required to pay for. And they paid for that by trading furs along the way. And they, they um they went down the mississippi they um would take their canoe and anchor out in the middle of the river at night for safety and they were concerned for their own lives they went as far south as the arkansas river and um they realized that they were getting into the territory of the spanish and the spanish um allies had been armed with guns and they feared for their own safety and for the safety of the records that they were creating by um, by recording what was happening on the exploration. And so they turned back to the North and during this time period, Marquette became sick with dysentery. Um, and the re record doesn't really show specifically what um, caused it. it. It could have been many things. He he only came back as far as the St. Francis Xavier Mission in Green Bay, and he stayed there for a year. And then he um, then after a year of recovery, he went south, and he wanted to form a mission among the Illinois tribe. And contrary to what we have all been told, Marquette was a slaveholder and definitely had at least two Native American slaves, and one of them was an Illinois 
um, and he spoke the language uh, of the Illinois, and he had a great affection for the slave, and so he had always wanted to um, form a mission among them. So he did that, and he went south and formed a mission among them, and and um, it went pretty well, but he was still sick, and so um, he decided then in 1675 that he uh, needed to come north back and try and get back to St. Ignace. And the, the um, I believe it's Jesuit relations is the source. And they say that the Native Americans carried his, his uh, personal effects for the first 90 miles. So he was loved among the Illinois. And so, so he and two Frenchmen, um, who accompanied him, they came came north along the um, east side of Lake Michigan, got as far north as um, Ludington area, although that's a debated fact. Um, and he died and they, um, they, per his request, buried him there under a simple wooden cross, which um, I find to always be pretty ironic because um, this man has got uh, rivers and towns and um, monuments and a railroad named after him. And all he really wanted in death was a simple wooden cross. And um, upon his death, he became the first known European to die in Michigan on Michigan soil. And um, so it's, by far not the end of his story though, his story goes on and on. And in 1677, um, a group of his parishioners led by the Ottawa, and those Ottawa would, or Odawa, um, would be the, the ancestors of the Little Travers Band. Um, and also what we would refer to around here as the Ants Band or the Mackinac Band. And, um, so those, um, those Ottawa returned to the site of the wooden cross and uh, there were 30 canoes of his parishioners that went and they dug up his body and the record says, quote, they found it whole. And um, then they stripped the flesh from the bones. They likely cremated the flesh, the although it does not say that they cremated the flesh, but it does say that they stripped the flesh from the bones. And um, then they took his skeleton and they did what they call disarticulated it or broke the bones apart at the joints, put them in a birch bark box and they um, canoed back to St. Ignace with um, his bones. When they got to St. Ignace, um, they, uh, which was in June of 1677, they, um, they uh, were immediately approached by the resident priests who, who demanded that they prove or uh, confirm that they had Father Marquette, and they took his bones and performed a Catholic um, ceremony, and they buried him in a vault beneath the church. It makes this a good time for a, uh, any questions about Father Marquette's life. Anybody have one? Okay, we can continue on to what happens then with his 
national burials because he's been buried and dug up several times, or maybe he hasn't. I guess that's what what we're uh, talking about. So, in eighteen seventy seven. Um, a man named Peter D. Grandin was clearing a lot in St. Ignis. And if anybody is familiar with St. Ignis, we're a town that is um, built along a C-shaped um, bay. And so this lot would have been at the very backside of the bay. And that's, um, that's where the, the Jesuit relations and military records say that um, that the Jesuit chapel was. And um, so so this lot that Peter D. Grandin was, was clearing had a, a foundation on it, which was approximately 36 by 40. It was made out of limestone. Um, and they, um, the people of the town had uh, been hearing about Father Marquette and they concluded um, that it was possibly the site of Marquette's chapel. And um, so this lot was owned by someone named Patrick Murray. Um, and the Murrays had owned the lot like 25 years and hadn't touched it. And no one in um, living memory remembered there having been a house on it and or any other structure. And um, so they started debating whether it could possibly be um, the chapel site. And they also started digging and um, they, they um, started digging and finding a few artifacts that made sense that they might be of Catholic origin. And so they called the local parish parish priest whose name is Edward Jacker or Edward Yacker um, because that J is probably pronounced Y in his um, in his uh, country of origin and um, so um, they found um, they found that the this um, foundation had what appeared to be a fort wall to the north and there were um, maps from the 1600s that indicated that the Jesuit fort, because the Jesuits had a fort, um, it was right next to a, a Huron fort. And, and so then that is a clue. And then they found um, seven or eight small um, foundations, which were um, had chimneys and had lime in the soil and and they presumed that they could have been um, French cabins. And there is a map that shows that there were French cabins just to the south of the Jesuit fort. So again, they had more supporting evidence. And um, then as they're doing this digging, um, they find first three small fragments of bone. And then a, a man named Joseph Marley finds another um, 36 small fragments of bone. And so um, Father Jacker, who did most of the um, re recording of what happened then, he sometimes says 36 um, pieces of bone. Sometimes he says 39. He says anything between the two, but, but the number of bone fragments is between 36 and 39. 
and just um, just less than an ounce, they figure, of bones. And just for reference, um, Marquette's skeleton would have weighed between 15 and 20 pounds live weight, and it would contain a dozen bones of 10 to 20 inches, and it would contain about 194 other bones. So, um, so the finding at that time was about an ounce of bones and between 39 fragments. So, um, so again, they're collecting evidence and Father Jack actually writing some of the most famous historians in the United States and, and receiving um, information back from them in the form of maps and so on that support the finding. And, um, and the circumstantial evidence is pretty good. In the meantime, though, what was happening um, People were coming, they were getting off boats, they were being handed shovels and they were just digging. Children were digging, adults were digging, they were throwing soil all over the place. There was no methodology to what they were doing. So, and this becomes an issue kind of later. So, um, so again, the arguments are lining up for and against whether they've actually found the site of the Marquette Mission Chapel and also Marquette's bones. And um, and they're amassing artifacts as they're doing this digging. They're finding crosses and Jesuit rings, little rings that um, would be given to the parishioners um, as a reward for being pious, for instance. They're finding pieces of metal, which they feel supports the fact that they've found the Jesuit chapel because um, they knew that um, had perhaps a forge and they had metalworking ability and that they would use that metalworking ability to both trade and also they would use it to, um, to um, reward their parishioners again and, and they would use metal repairs that they would do um, on site again, to trade or to, to um, get labor, they would um, use it for various things. So another piece of evidence that they found is um, that an oral history surfaced that said that there had been a black cross that stood on that site, um, not, not recent to 1877, but in the memories of some of the oldest citizens in the town, there had been a black cross that had stood there. And then they also found an oral history that some of the Native American elders from the area would stop there and pray. And nobody knew exactly um, what the origin of, of that tradition was, but, um, but they found an oral history that that existed. So there were, was a lot of circumstantial evidence that the foundation and the, the bones were in fact related to Marquette. And, um, but there were debates and um, it wasn't exactly a given that they had found it. And of course, one of the first things that they debated is why is there one ounce of bones here? Why are there 36 little, 36 to 39 little fragments when we're really looking at close to 200 bones that would have existed in his skeleton. And um, there were debates about um, some of the other things that were taken in. For instance, they took birch bark 
um, the existence of birch bark within the digging to have meant that they found pieces of Father Marquette's um, little birch bark coffin. But in fact, um, birch bark is, was a really common substance used for cooking and fires and all kinds of things um, in Native American uh, villages. And they had also taken pieces of charred material to be a clue that they had found um, the, the former Jesuit mission, but um, th they had problems with fire all the time in villages in the 1600s. Everything was made out of wood and they cooked with wood and they um, heated with wood. So, um, so it was a big issue they feared all the time. So charred material didn't really mean a whole lot. So regardless of the debate, um, there, there was uh, enough support that in 1882, they built a monument to Father Marquette um, on the site of what we now call the Ojibwe Museum, the Ojibwe Museum in St. Ignace. And, um, and they um, then started to have debates about what would happen to the 36 to 39 bone fragments. And so when they built the monument, they took seven pieces of the bone fragments and they buried them under the monument. They took 19 pieces of the bone fragments and, and at Father Jacker's uh, Father Jacker arranged it and Father Jacker sent the 19 pieces to um, Marquette University in Wisconsin for safekeeping. And other pieces, uh, the remaining pieces, some of them were given away as souvenirs. Um, a, um, an account surfaced in the last few years that was a, a priest in the Northern Lower and he had one of the bone fragments that he kept in his vest pocket. And um, and you know, who knows what has happened to it. So um, so the 19 pieces, the 19 bone fragments are were returned to St. Ignace in 2022. But um, before they were returned here, I had called Marquette University, I don't know how many times. Um, and I would, the same thing would happen. I would call, I would say, um, I'm researching Father Marquette. I'm writing a book. Um, could you let me speak to who, whoever it is who knows about Marquette's bones? And they would go, bones? We don't have Marquette's bones. And that would be the end of the conversation. And so I would make this phone call again and again, and I would get the same response. We don't know anything about any, any bones. And then one day I called and um, I said, I'd like to talk to somebody about Marquette, Marquette's bones. And they said, yes, she'll be back after lunch. And um, and so um, I was able to interview the lady who actually basically had custody of Father Marquette's bones, the purported bones, I should say, because it's not not really been proven. You know, it's still circumstantial evidence, but um, the 19 bone fragments that were sent to Marquette University were stored in the archives at um, Marquette University. They weren't on display. They were in little paper boxes. They, they had been there uh, for more than a hundred years. They were sealed with wax seals. 
And only one of those little boxes was ever opened. And it was open to do um, x-rays of the bone fragments that are within the boxes. And um, the archivist said that the, um, the x-rays seemed to indicate that the bones were human. And um, so they um, had never done DNA or radiocarbon um, testing on these bone fragments. And they said their reasoning was as the um, likely remains of a sacred individual, they would not um, drill into them or destroy them in any way. And DNA testing and radiocarbon takes um, destroying a small amount of the tissue. So they would not, um, they would not be willing to have those tests done. So, um, so and here I want to lead to um, modern finding because starting in about 1970, there were several archeological digs done. In fact, there were years or decades of archeological digs done at the site of the foundation. And the archeologists had basically almost unanimously concluded that they did not think that that was the site of the Marquette mission. But, um, it, and also the archeologists retrieved the seven bone fragments that were um, put under the monument that they built and tested those. And those seven bone fragments were cow skull and animal bones. And, um, but there is some, there is something about the archeology span that's kind of um, in a couple of things. So when they, when they started to do the archeological testing, they um, right away, they had an issue, which is that, that no one kept track of the exact site of the foundation when they found it in 1877. They um, they had to try and reconstruct from notes where that original foundation was at, and and then they went from there with some difficulties with their survey work and trying to patch it all back together. They finally concluded that the specific site was the site of the um, thirty six by forty foundation, and they um, the site that they picked out is a site that had an outhouse built on it about two years after, um, two years or just a couple of years after the finding of Marquette's graves, grave site, if that is his grave site. And, um, and right before the monument, it had been backfilled with garbage, which to me um, has always been this really kind of something that just doesn't sit so um, if you think you found the grave of a sacred and individual, um, then you quit digging and then you put an outhouse on that site and also fill garbage. So that part uh, of the story, and, and I'm glad to see a, a couple people shake their head. Um, so that part of the story to me kind of doesn't make sense. Like if, if, being that the whole town was so excited to find him, um, to find these remains, find this foundation, and and that they wanted to build monument, that they um, then in the intervening years 
fill the area with garbage in and out. It doesn't really make sense. So in, in conclusion, I would say, um, people ask me all the time, um, what do I think? Um, do we have Marquette's bones or do we not have Marquette's bones? And, and sometimes I just say, I'm not sure it matters. Um, either um, the bones that we do have are a, a great reminder of our history and get people excited about learning more about our history. And um, and um, so if they're not Marquette, um, they're, they're still wonderful for, um, for learning and um, they're still inspiring. And also they could very well be somebody's bones and those bones don't belong in an archive department in Wisconsin. They belong um, where they came from amongst their people. And, um, but if they are Marquette, um, it definitely belong here and, um, and we'll never solve the puzzle of the other uh, basically 200 ish bones that are missing if we're missing some of the parts. So um so that's it for me. I I'm glad to take questions if anybody has any. Well thank you so much, Jennifer. Yes. Um I'm kind of looking out in the audience there. I've got my gallery view up. Um, it's so nice to see other fellow UP um, notable books authors with us tonight, past and present for 2024. Um, does anyone have any questions for Jennifer? Okay, Diana, can you unmute yourself? Okay, it looks like she might be trying to unmute herself. Let's hope. Does she know how to unmute herself? So Diana, in the right hand, left-hand corner, there's a button that says mute. You pull it up, you can hit unmute. There we um, go. In 2020, Chuck, 2022, my husband before that had been asked by an Episcopal priest who was in his 80s that those bones should not stay down at, at Marquette University. So the Native Americans came to John and he set up a program, got funding. They went down and got them and brought them up and had a big celebration up in St. Ignace run by the natives and the history museum and now they're reburied under the statue <laughs> right yes so this must be john magnuson yes is that yes okay so um and i spent uh and and i it sounds like he's just off off the screen from from you but i spent last night with tony grandin and russ Rickley, and um and uh and the they are part of the team of people that brought the 19 bone fragments back from um, Marquette University, and and so and that to me is really interesting for a couple of reasons. Um, like I said, it needed to be done, and I'm I'm so glad that it was done. And in fact, I donated some money toward. Nice to see you. I donated, donated some money toward the project. I thought it was just wonderful. And um, and it actually was announced that they were bringing this back like the same week I announced that I had written a book on the subject. Sure. The timing could not have been more amazing to tell right. you the truth. Right. And, um, 
And so, um, so this team of about 10 people, and I'm not an expert on it because you guys haven't really talked much about everything that mm -hmm. um, they went and with Native American ceremony, they brought the bone fragments back from Marquette University and, and buried them under a limestone slab at the, um, at the mission site. And, mm -hmm. um, and I think it's awesome that you guys did that. I think it's really amazing. And um, last night, even I was talking about um, about it with Tony and Russ Rickley, two of the Native Americans who helped put the ceremony together. And um, and I really like you guys to tell your story. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, Jim Boynton, who is a Jesuit brother, uh, who we all know grew up in San Ignace and now is uh, living in Detroit. Yeah, he spoke, he was the only non-Indian who spoke at the ceremony. The native community put him, put the bones back. And um, mm -hmm. there was a delegation from Marquette University that also joined us and the Jesuit priest who first called me in 2018 from Kentucky saying that he uh, was 89 years old and that he was soon going to die. And he knows, he, he said, I have, I've been in the archives of Marquette University. And he basically received the same message that you did, which was, we don't, they're not on display. We don't have any boats. And he found them. He worked for the yeah. university, found them. And then he called me and said, I've been trying for 15 years to get these back. And I said to him, they're not going to come back unless the Native people who are the descendants of, of that community want the bones back. They, right. they have to be the ones to make the request. So Sir Shirley Sorrells, who was then director of the Ojibwe Museum, she wrote the letter to the president of Marquette University and said, we respectfully want to invite you to consider returning the bones and, the and, and so um, that's how that story unfolded uh, there is a uh, if if you can remember cedartreeinstitute.org if you go mm -hmm. on there is a documentary called The Return which mm -hmm. was essentially filmed it's uh, at in St. Ignace in 2022 and um, Tony's in it, Russ is in it, Shirley's in it, uh, Jim Boynton, the ceremony is in it. It's 20, 21 minutes long, but there are pictures mm -hmm. of Market University, the ceremony that took place there, the transfer of the bones. So, um, you know, that's that's in a, for historical record and, and the museum has a copy of that DVD. So I think, um, what you've done is a beautiful thing by uh, your history. Uh, and Prentice Brown um, was right there during, I had seen him in 2022 and said to him, Prentice, uh, if uh, this ever happens, you will be by my side when those bones are put back in the ground. Because you know, he was president of the Historical Society for many years in St. Ignace, yeah. and there he was, age 96, yeah. Uh, yeah. sitting with my wife. So 
it all came together yes. with your book and the ceremony. And I the think, uh, yeah, and the pressure on the university. Yeah. The Jesuit seminary put big pressure on the... Uh, that's, there's always backstories to history. So, you know, some things will not, not always be uh, in written history. But you can imagine what it was like, the negotiations um, to bring the bones back, because we initially uh, had the same response as you did when you inquired. Right. Yes. That, that there was a denial. And but since our Jesuit friends had seen the bones, had actually seen the, the small containers and knew they were there, he knew they were there. So. Yes. Uh, that was, and of course, Jim Boynton did a beautiful uh, uh, work on behalf of the San Ignis community. Yeah. So, so and, you can thank you much yes. for your great work. And uh, history is just a marvelous, marvelous thing. And yes, your, thank your wonderful you. research and good, beautiful. Thank, thank you. you. That's kind of you. Thank you. <laughs> um, I see. I see. Yeah. There's a. Um, did you have more questions? I I see there's a chat question here, so I'll read it here. If they're not Marquette's bones, do you have a theory for the story of going to Ludington to bring back his bones and the grizzly? The Native Americans give the Jesuits some other what? Oh, I like that question. Um. Okay, so, well, it's two questions. So I do not believe that they are not in St. Ignace. I, I believe um, absolutely that they're in St. Ignace. Um, so if whether or not the 36 or 39 bone fragments are, are his, um, the other uh, 190 bones are, I believe, still there. I believe they're within... 200 feet of uh of the identified spot which supports the theory that the identified spot is right um i i believe that they are uh, still in ludington or or anywhere else because it, it was it was just such a sensational um story in the 1600s it, it's very clearly outlined that they brought them back and um so hopefully that that answers the question. Anybody else have one? Okay, one from Tyler. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jennifer, at first I thought your book was fabulous. I learned so much. I had absolutely no idea about all the different possibilities for bones. But my, my question is more a general one. Um, since I live in the town of Marquette, I'm kind of like obsessed with the city of Marquette. And of course it's named for Father Marquette. So I've heard different stories. Um, well, a, there, there is a legend that he supposedly stopped here in the, the bay where Marquette is founded and held a mass here and converted a bunch of the Native Americans. And that's why the city is named for him. But I don't believe there's any actual evidence of that. I don't know if you know if there's any evidence of that. And then my other, the other part of my question is, what do you attribute to being the reason why, like over all the other uh, French Canadian Jesuits of that period, 
why is his name and why is he so popular that so many things have been named after him? Because I've heard he's like the third or fourth most popular place name in the country. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so, so to start with, it's actually a really common question that I get asked is, um, what is the real relationship between father Marquette and the town of Marquette? And, um, and, um, in the, all of the records from the 1600s that I've read, which is a lot, and, and um, all of the um, biographies and um, all of the Jesuit relations and so on, I've never seen uh, a specific statement that says that he stopped in and held this mass is kind of the legend. So that being said, like, um, uh, so for instance, it, in front of my house here, um, there are two areas, um, Point Labarbe and Grocap. And so those are, are named French origin that have um, were, were named um, in the 1600s, right? So is it possible that an oral history can actually survive that long? My answer to that would be yes. So um, so I, I, I can't, I, I tend to, to like to prove things black and white, so I can't really prove that black and white, but is it completely impossible that he held a mask there? No, I'm, I'm sorry. It, it is completely, completely possible that he held a mask there and that the oral tradition just still exists. And then um, the second part of the question was, I'm sorry, I focused so much on the first part, I can't remember already. Well, just why why do you think his name is so popular that there are so many place names named after him? I mean, there's like at well, least four cities in Marquette. Yeah, I, I um I agree. And um I even tried at one point in time to see how many books were written about Father Marquette and, and I could not even come close. I would say thousands, right? Um and, and I wasn't sure even if I wanted to write another one but um but it is a subject that's not really covered so much but um i have a couple of reasons uh he was the first um he was the first european to die on michigan soil so so when that is who you are you're you're important but um also though just the um the graphic details of the body preparation that um that that took place and even though it's only a few sentences in um, in Jesuit relations, it it sure um, is a memorable thing when they start talking about stripping the flesh from his bones and and disarticulating them. And um, so I think that that also led to his lasting fame. Thank you. Thank you. Anybody else? I have one question. I was just, well, I really, again, like Tyler said, I really enjoyed your book and I learned a lot of things that I did not know. I'm always, you know, being a former English teacher, I'm just so impressed with this wonderful bibliography you have in the back of all the research you did. And that's kind of leads me to my question. These Jesuit relations, you do a lot of referencing that. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Is that just a big series of books? Where are they? And did you read them cover to cover? 
No, um, I did not read them cover to cover. So what they are is um, there's 73 volumes of missionary reports, basically from the 1600s. And um, the missionaries would um, record things like this is the number of baptisms that we ha have undertaken in since our last report. And um, and they would also record little bits and pieces about uh, Native American culture and and, um, and things uh, about what they ate. And, and for instance, one Jesuit survived for a while on crunchy dried frogs. So, um, so some of it is quite, um, quite interesting, and some of it is pretty dry, right? Um, but, um, but I'm able to um, take the reports and basically separate the reports from the Ottawa missions, which is what they, the umbrella that they put um, the Michigan missions under and separate those from, for instance, the reports from the Iroquois missions, and, unless I wanted to um, to specifically focus on some something from a certain year, because they're, they're basically, each of the 72 volumes covers a year or two, and, um, and they end basically right about the time of Marquette, uh, Marquette's bones being returned to, um, to, to St. Ignace. So, um, so I'm able to, um, I'm able to just read the um, Ottawa missions reports, and sometimes, you know, I might branch off and read the reports from St. Francis Xavier in Green Bay, which is is part of the Ottawa missions. But, um, you know, just kind of separate like that. So I haven't read all ten thousand pages. They're ten thousand pages, and they're written in both French and um, also in English. They they would have one French and then the next page is the translation and they are available um, online. And um, so that's nice too, because if you, if you have something in particular you want to search for, you can, you can, you can search, but I do also have copies of, of a lot of books from that age here. And I have parts of, of Jesuit relations here in my library. Yeah, I was kind of curious about that. I thought that was kind of interesting myself when I was reading your work. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yes, and thank you for the compliments on the um, the research. And and I I would like to say here that like I'm just a lady who um who started liking this kind of history and keeping notes on it, and then decided to write a book while I played online poker in, you know, in my lazy boy at the same time, like to be on the list of notable books that, I mean, they're, these authors are seriously, um, have serious abilities. And I'm just kind of a hobbyist who, who kind of got obsessed. <laughs> yeah, I, I would, I mean, I think hobby kind of, has the connotation of it as something being easy and maybe it is easy because you're so interested in it but I don't think what you did was easy you know you did a lot of hard work you know and a lot of research to make something very interesting to lay people that aren't devouring 1600 Michigan information so I'm really appreciative <laughs> yeah. it's, it's kind of like a nice cliff note sort of for 
you know, I mean, yes. to make it kind of come to life. That that's, that's art. That's not a hobby. So congratulations. Well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, there's another chat message down here. I'll, I'll open it up here. Oh, okay. The French Canadian Heritage Society of Michigan is also good for information on the history of the French in Michigan. And yes, that is true. They are. Um, and so then it, it shows the website, HTTPS colon, I think that's backslash backslash www.habitant. Habitant means um, you know, farmer or um, inhabitant. Basically it means um, person, uh, heritage. So yes, um, especially, um, my late husband was a uh, French Canadian and um, had fur trade family background and um, and I have visited Habitant, Habitant Heritage and they are um, a great, um, they are a great source. Okay. This says Peggy's supporting the Native Americans with her online poker. <laughs> great research and a labor of love, super job. I appreciate that. I um, if if referring to me, I I don't invest real money in my online poker. I I only invest my ego, and I just like to win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we have any other questions or comments from the group before we kind of wrap up tonight's program? Well, one more. I have one. I don't, and, and you don't have to answer if it's inappropriate. But would you be of Native American descent? I am not of Native American descent, and I'm also not Catholic, which is um, oh. a, I I kind of get um the rap for both um with dark hair and and um also um writing about um the Catholic missionaries. My um late husband was. Chippewa and so um and I have a whole bunch of grandkids and a whole um whole bunch of relatives who are who are Chippewa and um so um so yes that the answer is um I I have always been interested from a family perspective but not my family not my specific lineage okay thank you <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Jennifer. Like I, I hope um, for those of you who haven't read the book, it's not long and you'll learn an awful lot. I mean, Jennifer covered quite a bit of the book here, but she certainly didn't cover everything. There was really a lot of surprises to me, you know, along the way and having been, you know, um, well, from the upper peninsula and being 50 years old, I thought I knew a lot more things that I guess I did. So this was a good book. Thank you very much for sharing it with us. Talking. Thank you. And we hope to see you all back. Um, the date will be, I'm just going to double check here the calendar, but I think it is on March 14th. And we will be back with Matthew Hellman to talk about the biting cold. So yes. thank you everyone. Thank you. And thank you to the UP um, Publishers and Authors Association. And thank you to the Crystal Falls Library. And thank you, Victor. And thank you, Evelyn. I really appreciate it. You've been watching the UP Notable Books Club, brought to you by the Upper Peninsula Publisher and Authors Association. 
to join or for more information, please visit us at www.upa.org or www.upnotable.com.